You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. My name is Christina and today I am joined by Dr. Ben Kroon to chat about polycystic ovary syndrome. Welcome, Ben. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, hi, Christina. My pleasure. Now, Ben, you are an obstetrician and gynecologist at Eve Health and Queensland Fertility Group, where you also subspecialize in fertility and reproductive endocrinology. So perfectly placed to chat to us today. And one of only a few, I believe, in the state that actually has that sort of further subspecialized training. You're a bit of an overachiever by the sounds of it, um, looking at your bios and having to chat with you. So, you know, I really appreciate you being here today to share some of that expertise with the GPs around Australia. It's no problem. Look forward to it. Now, just to let our listeners know, like some of the other big topics that we cover on this podcast, we are going to split this topic into two episodes. So today, in this first episode, we're going to be covering the diagnosis and workup, I guess, for PCOS. But in our next episode, make sure you join us again, because we're going to delve a little bit deeper into the management and various aspects of management. So I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Now, Ben, this is a great opportunity to shine the spotlight on a condition that actually affects a lot of women. And doing a bit of, I guess, background for this podcast, I was surprised to see some of these statistics. As a GP, I certainly see PCOS quite a bit in my practice, but I'm always surprised when I see the statistics and just how common it is. I think I was reading it's the most common endocrinopathy in women and potentially affects like one in six women, maybe even one in four Indigenous Australian women. So it's it's quite staggering really how frequent it is. And despite this prevalence, we still get many women reporting sort of a delay in diagnosis and and sometimes even a lack of or inconsistent information about the condition and about its management. So I'm really excited to have you here and to be discussing this and to be really empowering GPs to learn a little bit more about this topic or just, I guess, have a refresher for those that are quite experienced with it as well. Christina, it is a huge topic and makes a large part of my practice. And Again, if you read the statistics, there's probably 50 to 70% they suspect is undiagnosed. And uh, of the people that walk in my door, while I think it's often been discussed, maybe broadly by the GP, it often, there hasn't been a name attached to the syndrome that they have. So I think it's a great discussion that we'll have here today around that exactly. So let's start off just really simply then, what is PCOS? And, you know, do we actually know what causes it yet? Because there's always been a little bit of discussion around that. So let's delve into it. We don't know. The short answer is we don't really know what causes it, annoyingly. I guess there's there's clearly a genetic link and you can see that there's often people with sisters or, or mothers who have or aunts who have PCOS in the family history. And there's clearly environmental factors at play but again we don't really know what those are you can see when women walk in the door that it's a syndrome that is often uncovered by weight gain so they might not not even know it might not have any of the stigmata of the disease then suddenly put on 10 or 15 kilos and all of a sudden become amenorrheic or oligomenorrheic um, and might notice an increase in hirsutism and acne so it is really interesting that the, the environmental factors and and weight in particular do play into it but we really don't know what causes it unfortunately. So let's talk about diagnosis then in terms of diagnostic criteria. And this has, my understanding is that it has changed a little bit and evolved over time. So in terms of a bit of a refresher about what the diagnosis entails, that would be great. Sure. I guess just remembering this is a a complex syndrome with reproductive, metabolic and psychological features. And 
the diagnostic criteria are evolving, and I'll talk in a second about one particular area there. It's evolving, but at the moment, it, it still sits with a, a variation of the old what they called the Rotterdam criteria. So you need two or three things to diagnose. One of those things is ovulatory dysfunction. Okay, so that's irregular menstrual cycles. From a practical point of view, it really is just cycle irregularity. So where a cycle sits less than twenty-one days or more than thirty-five days on average. Um, and so if you're having consistently irregular cycles, that's one of the criteria. The second one is either clinical or biochemical evidence of hyperandrogenism. And so that can just be, uh, from a clinical point of view, it can be hirsutism, acne, or male pattern baldness. And from a biochemical point of view, that is basically raised androgens. And we tend to test free testosterone or free androgen index are the best measures for that. The third thing is uh, the ultrasound evidence of polycystic ovaries. And so again, that's that appearance of the classical appearance. It's just the ring of antral follicles around the ovary um, on an ultrasound scan. They've more recently altered that diagnostic criteria because, of course, as ultrasounds become more advanced, we've got the ability to see more follicles. So it's essentially 20 or more antral follicles or 20 more little, little follicles being seen on the ultrasound uh, at the time of a scan, or an ovarian volume of 10 mils or greater. And, and I think this is the area that really trips up the radiologists and hence the GPs. And I feel really sorry for my GP colleagues because often the reporting is completely substandard. So uh, inaccurate counting or, or an absence of counting of follicles and a lack of knowledge of what the cutoff is. So often you know, I'll get people into my rooms with a scan that shows, it might say suggestive of PCOS or many antral follicles are seen. And when you get them in there and count them, you can clearly say that these have a polycystic ovarian morphology. So really frustrating for a GP trying to make a diagnosis when they you know, just don't get the adequate scan report. Can I unpack that a little bit more? You mentioned around the ultrasound technique getting more advanced and obviously becoming more sensitive at picking up these follicles, seeing that criteria change in terms of the number. Does it matter then what ultrasound is being used by your local radiology? You know, do you have to be alert that if a local radiology business uh, is using maybe an older, some older technology, would you still count it as polycystic ovarian morphology with a lower number? Or can you give any guidance around that? Every ultrasound practice in Australia should be using technology that is sufficient to pick up that level of follicles. I mean, the one that I have in my rooms that's five plus years old and a little portable one is sufficient to uh, of sufficient quality to detect that. So no, I think that you, you don't need to be aware of that level of detail regarding your local radiologist. They should all have a good enough machine to detect that. Whether or not the sonographer or the radiologist has adequate training in that area, now that's a different story. They should all have adequate training, but whether or not they feel confident enough to report. And I think that's where they often, the local radiology service that also x-rays knees and provides MRI services and all of those things, you know, sometimes the, the, the radiologists, it's difficult to be over everything and they might lack a little bit of specificity in terms of their language um, and their, um, their desire to make a call about polycystic ovarian morphology, which is a shame. And, you know, I've got the luxury 
luxury of being able to do it myself in my rooms. But also, I think the key thing for a GP would be know where your local provider is that has the best knowledge in this area. So in town where we are, we've got various groups that deliver great services specifically for women's ultrasound. Um, but of course, when you're in a rural setting, it's much more tricky. And, and it could be something that you actually engage your radiologist with a, a bit of a discussion if they're not giving a very clear diagnostic assessment, just engage them, you know, a bit of discussion to ask if they can, and that will heighten their skills in terms of their reporting, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And probably comes back to that age old sort of discussion around, you know, the more clinical information we can provide for the sonographer and radiologist, probably the the more helpful it is for them to be on the lookout for for certain things and actually report certain aspects. I I couldn't agree more. The the other thing that's probably worth knowing about is the difference between transabdominal and transvaginal scans. So transvaginal scans give a much better resolution of the ovary uh, and much greater ability to count antral follicles. Obviously, even someone who's not been sexually active and that's not a scan that would generally be performed and it is sometimes tricky doing an abdominal scan in someone who's more overweight so again makes it harder to count those antral follicles so in that setting where you either have a if you know that your radiologist or sonographer is not particularly skilled in this area or they have to do a transabdominal scan because someone hasn't been sexually active while you're interested in that antral follicle count if they can record more than 20 antral follicles then they're certainly going to be more than 20 there if they can count those abdominally Um, but actually the ovarian volume is much easier to measure so if they measure the ovarian volume that's absolutely sufficient so remember you only have to have 20 or more follicles on one or other ovary or an ovarian volume of 10 mils more on one or other ovary so just one ovary that's big or multifollicular gives you the an ultrasound um, criteria for polycystic ovarian morphology Great. And so while we're sort of talking about some of these specifics around ultrasound, in terms of timing of the cycle, because this is something I think that can sometimes trip people up as well in terms of when to actually order the ultrasound, what do you generally suggest for that? Honestly, I would just order the ultrasound. I wouldn't put too much weight on it because it gets very hard often to get into ultrasound practices. It puts more of a burden on the woman in terms of organizing her life to have the test. And you're right, you can't diagnose a polycystic ovary if there is a dominant follicle or a corpus luteum or a cyst there uh, because that uh, makes the ovarian volume bigger by default and of course also obscures some of the antral follicles that are sitting in the background so you kind of can't get it right (laughs) Um, uh, and, and, and clearly early cycle before a dominant follicle arises and when there's no corpus luteum would be ideal. But I, I honestly wouldn't bother with that. I'd just do the scan because maybe there's always going to be another ovary that doesn't have a dominant follicle or corpus luteum. So you are going to have a second ovary to look at. So I just order the test and see what you get back. And you may have to reorder the test at another time if you can't get adequate information. But I wouldn't worry too much about that. Just on that note, it's interesting. What we are going to see with time is the of AMH to this criteria, I've no doubt, because as you pointed out, ultrasound is, uh, there's a lot of inter and intra um, observer variability, depends on how good your machine is, how good you are at reporting it, um, whereas AMH as the anti-malarian hormone assays become more rigorous and more standardized, we're probably going to see AMH, which is essentially a surrogate for antral follicles. So in all of the little antral follicles you see in an ovary, they're lined by granulosa cells and the granulosa cells are what release AMH or anti-malarian hormones. So essentially they're equivalent. So if you've got lots of 
antral follicles in an ovary, then you will have a high AMH. And so at some point, there'll be an international criteria that includes that. But currently, we can't use that. In my hands, I guess I use it as a another marker, I suppose, to, to look at if, if I'm unhappy with the quality of a scan. But it doesn't currently fit as a diagnostic criteria. Yeah, well, that's certainly helpful, though, for our GPs to know what to look out for, to keep an eye on that in the future in terms of being included in the diagnosis. So very helpful. So let's talk about adolescents versus adults, because this is something that can be hard as well. Some of the features of PCOS can occur kind of physiologically post-puberty, so post-menarche. So I guess just talking about how there might be some differences and how you might approach this differently between, um, you know, sort of the adult and the adolescent. I think it is very difficult, isn't it? And I, again, feel sorry for my GP colleagues because I think that you guys deal with a lot of these presentations long, 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 long before they ever get to us. So actually, I see a very small number of adolescents. I'm sure others see more, but I think the key is, for a start, I think you really need to engage the adolescent and their parents, depending on their age, how important it is for them to have a diagnosis. Is that a useful thing for them? Because some people are struggle with having a diagnosis and others don't. So I think, you know, given that it is very hard to make a diagnosis, I think there is no shame. And I think it is useful in just saying, listen, it's really hard to diagnose you at this point, but you have some risk factors. You have possible or you're at increased risk of having PCOS in those girls who maybe have an increase in weight gain, have excessively irregular cycles, or have significant acne out of keeping with what is usual. In the adolescent, within those first few years of menarche, of course, you expect the cycles to be more irregular. So while in the adult, a cycle that's less than 21 days or greater than 35 days is what we would say is an irregular cycle, in the adolescent, at least in that first few years, we'd probably accept 21 to 45 days. So, you know, you're allowed for the cycles to be more irregular. You really would only start trying to diagnose someone or giving someone a label if they clearly were very hyperandrogenic, clearly very irregular cycles, had a lot of those metabolic features. And you're often aren't going to be unable to do the transvaginal scans. So you're going to go by polycystic ovarian morphology. Again, very difficult because the younger you are, the more follicles you have. Remembering, of course, that women are born with all the follicles they're ever going to have. You know, So when you see them in, as an adolescent, they're going to have, by definition, more follicles than they will ever have again in their life. And so you know, the ultrasound criteria are much less accurate in that group. So I guess my advice would just be, Talk to people about the fact, if you think clinically they're someone who is likely to have PCOS, talk about there being a likely diagnosis of PCOS or possible diagnosis of PCOS, and that it's something that they need to be reassessed for over the coming years as they gain their reproductive maturity, and then look at reassessing things. You know, once eight years or so past menarche, then they really are reproductively mature, and I think at that point you might want to clearly give them that label if that's what you think they have. That's great. That eight years is what I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you said that eight years too. That's when I think about being able to use the ultrasound. You might be getting ultrasounds earlier anyway because of other reasons or, you know, to exclude other things, but to not really rely on ultrasound for around eight years after menarche. So am I doing that right, Ben? <laughs> it's absolutely correct. I think it is a very grey area 
And and I think you're allowed to be grey with your patients, even though I know that sometimes parents will be pushing very hard for a firm diagnosis. I think telling people they're at risk, managing that, because in the end, all, you're not going to do anything different from a practical point of view. If they're overweight, you're going to recommend weight loss. If they you know, if they have their regular cycles, you're allowed to offer them the pill. You're allowed to manage the hyperandrogenism in the same way. You're not going to do anything different. But I think giving them a firm label until they've reached that age of reproductive maturity, I think is probably not necessarily that helpful, but talking to them about all the risks and the fact they might have that condition is helpful and and managing the the issues that go with it. Yeah, good. Okay. So, Ben, we've talked about quite a bit of detail around ultrasound and you mentioned a couple of the investigations to assess for hyperandrogenism. Is there anything else that you'd routinely do for someone when you do suspect PCOS and potentially even considering some of the differentials and what other tests you'd want to do to exclude other causes for menstrual irregularity and hyperandrogenism? Yeah, sure. I think the first thing is the menstrual irregularity. You just have to remember that ovulation gives you a regular cycle. If someone's having a regular bleed, they're ovulating. If they're having a a cycle again in that 21 to 35 days and it happens every month around about that time, they're ovulating. When it's outside of that, they could be ovulating, but it's probably sporadic or at least it's very delayed. And that fits very much with that uh, ovulation dysfunction. And it is hard you know, I use a very clinical definition of that. I actually don't do a lot of day 21 progesterone testing or mid-luteal progesterone testing, which is weird for a, a, a fertility guy. Um, but, you know, I think that the clinical discussion about what are your periods like is as useful as doing a day 21 progesterone. Because, of course, I think do it because it can help you. Uh, remember when you're going to do that progesterone level, I'd always do it with a a luteinizing hormone and an estradiol to again get a better picture of kind of where they are where they might be in the cycle but I really think your own clinical intuition about whether their cycle is regular or irregular is, is the most helpful. When it comes to looking at the hand hyperandrogenism again the free androgen index and the or the free testosterone are going to be your test and each lab will only offer one of those so if you just say a free androgen index which would be my chosen one, they will do a free testosterone if that's what they have available. You need to exclude other causes for irregular cycles. And so those are thyroid. So I'd I'd always do a TSH and of course, hyperprolactinemia. So again, always order a, a prolactin. Also in the back of your mind, you've got to think about the differentials of a non classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Pretty rare, but often present as a teenager with some increase in androgenic symptoms and some cycle irregularity. So I would always do a 17-hydroxyprogesterone in there. So really, that's the main other test. So thyroid, prolactin, and a 17-hydroxyprogesterone. Because if that's normal, then you don't have non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Of course, Cushing's, you know, very rare. You guys probably pick them up more. I don't, you know, pick them up more than I do. But Cushing's, that often has that very typical, you know, strii and buffalo hump and moon faces and and all of those kind of things. Hypertension. Um, so that is a differential. But I wouldn't be chasing that differential unless someone had a very clear presentation that proximal myopathy, those kind of things. So really, yeah, those are the tests that I would do. That's outside of, I suppose, screening for other complications of PCOS. Excellent. Okay. 
Look, I think that's been a great overview to start us off with this topic, Ben. I really appreciate it. I'm going to stop us there and I'm going to keep our listeners <laughs> waiting and um, make sure that they tune back in because it is such a, a great chat that we're having. Please do join us back for the next episode where we're going to be talking about some of those management principles. So thanks again, Ben, and look forward to chatting to you again soon. No problem. Talk soon. Talk soon.